Hey, how's it going? Great, glad to hear it. My name's Jeremy Ullman. I'm the host of this podcast, Abstract, colon, The Future of Science. So what's this all about? There are thousands upon thousands of graduate students all across the world, and I'm trying to tap into their knowledge they have gained in their research over the last one to seven years. We recorded this in the past, you're listening to it in the present, and you're learning about the future. So, what better time than now to enjoy a quick episode of Abstract. Hope you enjoy. Welcome back. Before we hop into things, here's a quick list of the kind of questions you can expect to be answered on today's episode. So... How has bioengineering paved the way for a new, innovative cancer therapy? And how can we beat cancer at its own game? Why is cancer a more perfect version of us? And are we on the brink of a revolution in cancer treatment? Also, how can we manipulate our own immune system to maximize its efficiency? And is it worth engaging in research just for research's sake? answer to these and many, 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 many more questions on today's episode of Abstract, episode 36. Let's get going. Here we go. Sam Little is a PhD candidate in electrical engineering at Concordia University in Montreal, and he currently holds a fellowship in applied synthetic biology. His PhD research focuses on the use of microfluidics to automate the genetic engineering of mammalian cells. More specifically, Sam works on techniques for producing modified human immune cells and the generation of homogeneous populations of cells modified with CRISPR-Cas9. Sam's academic interests include the future of somatic genome engineering, synthetic biology, and medical ethics. He was recently the lead author of a book chapter detailing how droplet microfluidics can be used to automate synthetic biology, in which he and his co-authors called for the field to begin to work towards a biological processing unit capable of end-to-end cell engineering. Outside the lab, Sam enjoys riding and fixing bikes, rock climbing, and just being outdoors. So we're inside right now, and without further ado, let's welcome Sam to the podcast. Sam, how's it going? Hey, it's going well, Jeremy. Thanks for having me. Yeah, this is awesome. Really excited. Every time I sit down with somebody, it's just like a new exciting thing that happens. Yeah, absolutely. So this is a great part of my day. Thanks for being here. Just a quick quick little um, reference for the listeners right now. This is not the first episode that we will be potentially discussing a bit about CRISPR-Cas9. So if you want to learn a bit more about that, please feel free to check out episode 17B with Owen Dunkley. And we also might touch a bit on the immune system, in which case you can go back to episode 14 and 17 for that. So we're kind of building a little bit on previous research, which was slightly more biological. Here we're going to have a little more engineering-related discussion. Yeah, it's going to be exciting. Yeah. In terms of the team that you're working with at your lab at, at Concordia, are you the engineering guy or like what's the kind of anatomy of your research team like? Yeah, good question. So the, the lab is very interdisciplinary. I would say we're right down the middle engineers and biologists right now. For a while, I was um, one of the lone engineers, but we're adding more slowly. And I would say the engineers that are in the lab are getting a lot of biology skills. And the biologists in the lab are really honing in their engineering acumen. So it's to the point now where I can discuss hard-hitting engineering concepts with someone who is a biologist through their undergraduate training. And me and other engineers can have really in-depth biology conversations. So the lab really focuses on not having these clearly defined demarcations between our engineers 
not biologists, but everyone needs to be good at everything. And I'd say that's like a pretty, a pretty fundamental ethos of the lab. That's awesome. I like when everything yeah. bleeds together. That's that's the point of the team is everybody gets to learn from everybody else. Since we are made up so heavily of engineering students, we're just not going to have these deep fundamental insights on biology that a more pure biology lab is going to have. So where our strength is, like where we are going to introduce novelty into the field is by saying, what small little engineering tweaks can we make such that when we're working with these biological components, you know, whether it's cells, whether it's just proteins free of cells, whether it's just DNA isolated, you know, what can we do that's unique that can allow us to make something brand new? And so by really emphasizing this interdisciplinary nature, we can come across those little pieces of novelty. That's awesome. I love that you're studying engineering at the level of biology, because usually when people, and including myself, think of engineering, we think of bridges and buildings and stuff like that, macroscopic. Well, and that's like what's really appealing about engineering. Like when I was an undergraduate, all I wanted to do is work on jet planes. Like I didn't think there's anything worth doing if it couldn't go to space or couldn't fly 30,000 feet. <laughs> And while that's super true, like we have our mutual friend, Noah, that's what he works on and that's what he loves. And so I love nerding out with him about that. But what I found is that like, if you want to be like extremely nimble, if you want to work on, you know, things that are still 20, 30 years into the future, like you got to look at the micro scale. You know, if you can make something that's 10 microns large and can do something extremely complicated with cells, well, there's a huge future there. Mm hmm. When we talk about scales here of the universe <laughs> dialing into the human body, what is kind of the upper limit and lower limit of what you work on in synthetic biology? You did drop a couple of terms like DNA and, and sure. proteins, but like how big and how small do we get? What's the range we're working within? That's a really good question. The lower end, I'm going to say, is probably 10 to 15 microns, just because mammalian cells don't get much smaller than that. Like maybe there's some or like some uh, malformed cells will get smaller than that. But for me personally, like anything sm smaller than 10 microns, I'm not super interested in. As a matter of fact, I'm interested in a little bit larger, like 20, 25 microns, just because I want to work with several cells at once. Mm -hmm. Some of my colleagues work with single cell work, which is when you're sticking really around that 10 mark. But for me, I'm in 20, 50, even, mm -hmm. even larger. For me, I find some nanoscientists and microscientists become dogmatic about that prefix where they're like, no, no, we do nano work, we do micro work, we can't get any larger. But something I encourage in my lab is like, let's not be too strict about that because sometimes, you know, sometimes there's a good reason to have a, a liter bag sticking off the end of your device. Mm -hmm. So if we're saying like, okay, we only do micro scale research, we only do nano scale research, you're just lopping off a huge chunk of a process that you just can't do. So I would say the low end, for me, 10, 20, 50 microns, the upper end, whatever is needed. Okay. Yeah. So up to the size of like an IV drip bag. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> for me, that's the goal. Like for me, the goal is to be making a device that feeds right into an IV drip bag that goes back into a patient. Okay. So now that we're talking about patients, what is the, the patient population that you are ultimately looking to serve with the research that you're doing? Is it, is, is it extremely broad or is there a specific pathology, a specific kind of disease that you're looking to treat by modifying immune cells? Yeah, that's a really good question. So, I mean, in, in the bio that we, we just went through, I said one of my interests is somatic gene therapy. Yeah. But basically, somatic gene therapy is just the idea of modifying a patient's developed cells to treat a disease okay. versus embryonic gene therapy, which is where you're changing the genome of a whole individual, which will be passed on to that individual's children. In somatic gene therapy, that's not what we're doing. We're just changing a gene that's faulty and is implicated heavily in a disease. So if we think about what I work on more specifically, 
I work on something called chimeric antigen receptor T-cell therapy. Chimeric antigen receptor T-cell therapy. Is there some kind of nice acronym we can use for that? CAR-T. CAR-T. Okay, CAR-T. yeah, you work with CAR-T. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And so it's actually funny. Car, like the acronym CAR has led to a million paper titles, like fixing the car, designing a new car. Yeah. Right? So, so, <laughs> so You're actually doing exactly what you wanted to do. It's just like it, like the cars don't fly, but they're just kind of... Yeah, you know. I made that joke a few times. Like I want to work on yeah. cars, but not like this. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but but anyways, so, so CAR-T therapy is this really simple idea that is quite complicated like most good ideas and the idea is so if you have a cancer growing inside of your body most people don't know this but a lot of cancers are actually extinguished by the immune system before they ever become a problem our immune system is really good at figuring out what shouldn't be in our body or what's causing havoc in our body and going and eliminating it and as a matter of fact in the case of cancer it might be too good because cancer is defined by a rapidly growing and rapidly mutating growth inside of our body. And if you place a selective pressure on a cancer and a selective pressure being an immune cell attacking it, the cancer will quickly learn to mutate and grow away from that harmful presence, in this case, the immune system. And so the immune system works by latching on to little antigens on the surface of the cell and killing the cancer cell. And so what the cancer cell says is, I'm just not going to give you that antigen anymore. I'm not going to present you with anything that you can latch on to and, and kill me with. And so the cancer will quickly mutate to no longer be visible to the immune system. But what top level immunologists said is they said, what if we look at the cancer cell and find a surface protein? that the cancer cell can't get rid of. And what if we design a new novel receptor that can target those proteins? And so right out of the gate, uh, a pretty good candidate emerged. And that was a cancer called acute lymphoblastic leukemia. I think one of the reasons why this is such an, well, there's a couple of reasons that this is such an appealing target. One was it's a cancer that's very commonly seen in children, which makes it a really compelling target. The other one is, is that this type of cancer, acute lymphoblastic leukemia, ALL, it's a blood cancer. And so that means it's circulating through our blood. And we can look at these cell types and we can quickly find a couple proteins that are going to be present on these cells and not other cells. And a prime candidate was this protein called CD19, uh, which is a protein that's present on the surface of B cells, but not really many other cells. So what these immunologists did is they took immune cells out of the human body, take the T cells, and you make the genetic construct for uh, a new receptor you insert that into the immune cells, and now this immune cell can create a receptor that can target the CD19 protein. You put it back into the patient, just view it a blood infusion, and now all of a sudden you have these immune cells that can target the cancerous B cells. And so they latch on to the CD19 proteins and they'll kill off those, those cancerous cells. And so this was an idea that was kind of developed over like the last 20 years or so. And just in the last five, 10 years, they've been showing some extremely promising results, even going as far as saying it's an outright cure for acute lymphoblastic leukemia. Okay, hold on a second. There's there's a lot that just happened. Yeah. Our immune cells are not as smart as cancer cells, but we as human beings are smarter than both. So <laughs> we could then go in and modify immune cells to take care of things. That's what I took away from that. I wouldn't say that cancer is smarter than our immune cells. I would say that cancer is faster than our immune cells. There's this great book by um, Siddhartha Mukherjee. It's called The Emperor of All Maladies. And he wrote it as if it was a biography for cancer. And wow. I recommend people check it. If they're interested in this topic, check it out. And he, in the book, describes cancer as a more perfect version of us, which is like a really rattling term 
especially if you've ever like have a loved one who's, who's faced cancer, as I'm sure many of your listeners yeah. have. But he says cancer is a more perfect version of us is because cancer perfects the cell division. You know, in our body, cell division is highly regulated. It's controlled precisely and only happens when it needs to happen. In cancer, cell division happens anytime it wants because it wants to. It takes all of the resources and it uses it to divide, 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 and grow into these massive growths, right? So it's not like it's more intelligent. It's just going so much quicker than our immune system. So our immune system has all these highly sophisticated techniques for developing receptors that can attack any invader that comes into our system or any internal malady, whether it be a cancer or, or some other sickness and attack that. So it's equipped with this really, really wide tool belt, but cancer is moving so quickly that, it, you know, our innate immune system just has its doors blown right off. And so what we're doing yeah. is just giving our immune system the extra tool it needs to circumvent this fast moving growth. Okay. So we're not giving the intelligence, we're giving the speed. Yeah. Or, or we're, we're cutting it to the end point, right? Like we're just saying like, hey, we know a shortcut to the final destination because like it'll be this ongoing battle. Say, say on a cancer cell, there's three or four surface proteins that our immune system can identify. Well, we'll go for the, like the easiest one first and then the cancer cell will downregulate that surface protein. Well, then I'll go for the next one. It'll downregulate that surface protein. And, and slowly but surely the cancer evades the immune system. And that's actually like the, the term used within the community. It's called... Um, immune system evasion, right? That's kind of the blanket term. Yeah, I like that term. That's pretty clear. It's very clear. Yeah, it's actually, um, there's this famous set of papers called the hallmarks of cancer, where people are trying to like, classify, like what makes something a cancer. And there's like these hallmarks and immune system evasion is one of the hallmarks. And so what we're saying is like, okay, if we know our immune system is just going to be invaded at every step, why don't we take it to the finish line? Why don't we find the surface protein that the cancer can't downregulate? Right, the one that is going to remain on the surface because it's so innate to the function of the cell that this surface protein has to be there. And what if we teach our immune system to attack that surface protein? And, and that's kind of like the ethos. Okay, it seems like there's potentially another plan of attack. If we seem to know the cancer, at least this particular type of cancer, very well, can we not modify the cancer directly? As opposed to modifying our immune cells, could we not like put a protein on the surface of the cancer that we know our immune cells can actually bind to? That's an interesting question. I think the problem with that would be, so so once again, let's return back to the CAR T therapy. How does it work? Well, we take the immune system out of the body, we engineer it outside the body inside of devices that I want to work on, and then we re-inject it back into the body. If we could do the same thing with cancer, we just wouldn't put it back into the body. You know, if we could take cancer out, you know, and, <laughs> okay. and so, you know, if we could take the cancer cells out, we wouldn't engineer them and put them back in. We would just leave them out. <laughs> when you put it that way, it's like, oh, it's honey, did you forget the cancer on the counter overnight? Oh, it's all dried yeah, exactly. up. Exactly. Well, well, actually, you know, that was, in, in, if you were born in 1910 and you had cancer, your pretty much only hope would be exactly what we're talking about, surgical removal. And, you know, for a long time, that was the cancer treatment du jour. You know, but surgery is still a, a robust option for cancer patients, but it, it's not a great option if you, if you have a metastasized cancer. So this option is better because, you know, no matter where the, the cancer is in your body, theoretically, we can engineer the immune system to go and get it. Has it been done in a huge amount of instances? No, there's really only one or a few types of cancer that it's being done frequently for, and those are almost exclusively blood cancers, but the field is rapidly moving towards solid tumors. Solid tumors is the next frontier for this field.
Yeah. Are you telling me that the uh, CAR-T therapy can be applied for tumors in any part of the body? That's where the field is moving towards. That's the goal. But like you're saying, we've only tested on a few specific types of cancer. So this is this is just a theory that based on what we've seen so far, we believe it has this this, this widespread applicability. Yeah, so we, we know that it can work for blood cancers. We know that it can work for acute lymphoblastic leukemia. And there's a huge range of reasons why blood cancer was such a great target. The first one was the presence of the CD19 protein I told you about, right? Because the first thing we need when we're going to do a CAR-T therapy is we need a target. We need to be able to tell the immune system, here's a new thing for you to go and attack. And that target needs to meet a bunch of criteria. One, it needs to be broadly present on the cancerous cells and very rarely present on healthy cells, right? Because we we can tell our immune systems, go attack this target, but it's hard to tell the whole lot of other things. So say this target is present on, you know, all the cancerous cells, but also all the cells in your lung, it's, it's going to be no good, right? Yeah. So in the instance of ALL, the CD19 protein is actually present on all B cells. So what you do is you go and you kill all the cancerous B cells, but you also kill pretty much all the healthy B cells. So, so survivors of this treatment, they no longer have their terminal cancer, which is great, but they have B cell aplasia, meaning an absence of B cells. So they have to be on some medication for the rest of their lives that helps them deal with this lack of B cells and they're more, gonna be more prone to infections. In my opinion, that's much better than, than cancer, but it is it is a cost benefit. This kind of sounds like chemotherapy, though, where you're just attacking everything. Well, it's much more specific than chemotherapy because chemotherapy truly just attacks all rapidly dividing cells. B cell aplasia, not so, not so much. It's not. It's definitely not the same. You know, chemotherapy. Okay. Once again, you know, the Dr. Sidney Farber invented chemotherapy in the 50s, and it's been one of the best things to happen to cancer medicine, perhaps ever. I believe. CAR-T is that next step. I believe CAR-T is, is the second coming of chemotherapy. But Big words. Yeah, I'm definitely not going to disparage chemotherapy, but it, it, it's a very blunt tool. Can you tell me a little bit more about CD19? I, I feel like I, I kind of missed out on this beautiful little tool here. Yeah, so CD19 is just very simple. So CD, cluster of differentiation, and 19, just a numerical naming technique. But it just refers to a little surface protein that exists on the surface of all B cells. And B cells are a type of immune system cell? Yep, B cells are largely responsible for attacking viral invaders. And yep. they're a part of our immune system. They largely exist in our blood. And they can be a site of, of cancer. So most leukemias are B cell cancers. And what we found is if we target our CAR T cells towards the CD19 protein, it serves as a really robust targeting site. And our T cells can now have a very precise target to go in and attack these cancerous B cells and induce a cytotoxic uh, response to them and eliminate the cancerous B cells. Okay, now I have a much better idea of where where the car and where the T comes together. We got yeah. the car, we're giving it to the T, and then we're going in. That's exactly right. Hey, folks, you made it halfway through this extremely informative, extremely dense episode. If at any point you want to go back and check out some previous episodes that touch on similar content, you can check out episode 14, 17, 30, and 33. In addition, I'd like to drop a couple of book recommendations, because why not? So these are my five book recommendations for the week. Number one, Originals by Adam Grant. The Alchemist by Paolo Coelho. Meditations by Marcus Aurelius. The Last Lecture by Randy Posh. And Don't Sweat the Small Stuff by Richard Carlson. More book recommendations in future weeks. Back to the episode. Okay. How does this all come together and apply to microfluidics? This is a term that I've yeah. been extremely curious about. Where does that factor in? 
Sure, sure, sure. So say we have a patient who is sick with acute lymphoblastic leukemia, and we have an immunologist who's designed a car. And they're saying, hey, this car is going to cure this patient's cancer. What I want microfluidics to do is to be there to receive the blood. So step one, you draw blood out of the patient. Step two, you need to isolate out the immune cells, right? Because in the blood, there's a huge amount of different cells uh, with various functions, but some of those cells are mm -hmm. T cells. So you separate out the T cells. Right now that's done using centrifugation. You can imagine if you put a bunch of, you know, put a vial of blood into a centrifuge and you, you spin it down, the different components are going to separate based off their density, right? And so right now that's how it's done because we know the density yeah. of T cells, we can find where that's gonna be and we can pick it out, right? So now we have our isolated T cells. We need to get the DNA into those T cells, right? Which DNA? Oh, good question. So we have our immunologist who's designed his new car. Right. Well, well, what that is, is like anything, like any protein in our body, it, it's just a sequence of A's, C's, T's and G's. Right. We have a genetic sequence that's going to code for that protein. Right. And so when you have a genetic sequence, the genetic sequence get inside of the body will be transcribed into RNA and that RNA will be translated into a functioning protein that can have something. So if we can take a novel strand of DNA that we've designed that we know encodes for a car protein, and we can get that into an immune cell, well, then that's how we give the immune cell, the T, this new functionality, because we're giving it a whole new stretch of genes that gives it a new protein. So hold on. Sure. You're designing a, a novel strand of DNA that will then, when you implant it into the body, get turned into the car protein that you want. Yeah, Jeremy, this is the heart of synthetic biology. Basically, over the last 50 years or so, ever since Watson and Crick with the help of Rosalind Franklin, discovered how DNA-based pairing works. There's been a slow march towards further cementing our understanding of how genes are built, how genes encode for proteins, what are the various structures of proteins, and how we can work backwards. Instead of finding a protein and looking to see how that gene works, we can design genes and make our own proteins. And that's what genetic engineers do in the lab today. You know, we have enough knowledge base to know that if we take this you know, this series of ACs, Ts, and Gs, and we put it into a cell, we're going to produce this protein. Got it. So you're not making proteins outside the body. You're letting the body do the protein work, and you're just giving it the DNA. Yeah, we give it the DNA, and we let it do the work. So in this case of, of CAR-T therapy, you know, smarter immunologists than I have designed some very clever genetic sequences. And so what my goal is, is once we have, so take back to the CAR-T process, we have our isolated T cells, we need to get these genetic sequences into the immune cell, right? And so that's done. There's a huge array of ways of doing that, but one that is beginning to gain favor in the CAR-T therapy world is a technique called electroporation, um, which is a technique that I work on a lot. And the idea is if you apply a small electric field to a population of cells, it will cause pores to form in the surface of those cells. And so when you create these nanopores, all of a sudden, if you have DNA, in the liquid surrounding the cells and these nanopores open up, the DNA is just going to naturally migrate through those pores and into the cell. Oh, that's so, that's so beautiful. Yeah. It's really, really <laughs> elegant. And then you, you release. Yes. The, elegant was the word. The, yeah. You release the electric field. And as long as you didn't overwhelm the cell, as long as you didn't stress it out too hard, those pores will just naturally heal, sealing the DNA inside. So, that's how you just get simple DNA inside. But if you're being really clever about it, you don't just put DNA inside, you put DNA inside and you also put CRISPR-Cas9 proteins, 
right? So you put these Cas9 ribonucleic proteins and also the, the required guide RNA. So I know you said you've had an episode before talking about CRISPR-Cas9, um, yeah. so I won't do a deep dive into it now, but maybe I'll just, in case there's a listener who's only listened to this episode, I'll, I'll give a quick overview. Okay. So CRISPR-Cas9 is a technology that was developed by Jennifer Doudna and Emmanuel Charpentier in like 2011, 2012. Some people might be familiar with it. They just won a Nobel Prize for this development. But the idea is very simple. If you supply a guide RNA, to a CRISPR-associated protein, you can direct this protein to a very specific spot in the genome. So imagine your guide RNA as just being a map, and it's going to search through the genome to try to find a sequence of DNA that matches up with that RNA. Once they've found its match, its like location on the map, so to speak, it's going to bind onto that section of the genome, and the Cas9 DNA is going to create a break in the genome. Okay. So say you have a gene that's doing something you don't want. Mm. I don't know, creating a protein that's causing inflammation or something. You would take your guide RNA and give it the sequence for that gene. Your guide RNA would then take the Cas9 protein, go to that gene and create a double-stranded break. And more often than not, the cell is going to imperfectly repair that break, causing the gene to be no longer effective. So we're creating, we're actually forcing mutation but we assume that this mutation is not going to actually have further negative downstream effects. Correct. Now, that's for a knockout. For a knock-in, much more interesting. What you do is you take your guide RNA and you attach it to the Cas9 and you tell it to go towards your site of interest. And it's going to create a double-stranded break. Okay? And so now the cell is going to try to repair itself. But what we do as engineers, very clever, we flood the cell at the same time with the DNA of interest. So in the case of our CAR-T therapy, we flood the cell with the genetic information for the CAR. So now we have this double-stranded break right at the site we care about, and we have all of this CAR DNA floating around. And what the cell is going to do is it's going to grab some of that DNA and use it to repair the double-stranded break. So what we've effectively done, so we've taken a precise site inside of the genome, we've cut it open, and we've put our new DNA inside of it. And so now the T cells DNA has our new protein inside of it. I find it absolutely mind blowing that we have this weird way of communicating with our own DNA. Like we're not actually having a discussion. We're not using Morse code, right? There's no telegrams that we're passing back and forth. We're just kind of manipulating their env- the, the environment around a specific right. portion of a gene. And we're just kind of hoping that the body continues to do what it always does. And it just, it just kind of grabs whatever's near. Is it more precise than that, or, or is, do we kind of have our, our fingers crossed to a certain degree? I wish I could tell you it was super precise. I mean, it, it's not, though, because we are relying on these fundamentally stochastic processes to do things that we want them to do. And we need to create the perfect mutant. We need to create the cell that has exactly the genetic information we, have, we want, exactly where we want it. And if we can create that one cell... Well, then we can create a massive population of those cells because cells like to divide. That's what cells do. And so I spent a lot of time working on getting that one cell isolated into its own individual incubation area and letting it grow into a massive population that's all genetically identical to the original progeny. But I just want to double back real quickly to this. You, you nailed it. Like it's this imprecise dance of random processes that happen because they're fundamental to biology. And I just want to, you know, advance my ideology for a second this is why fundamental science is unbelievably important like funding people to do 
really bare bones work that doesn't have a clear application is like incredibly important because if we just stumbled upon CRISPR Cas9 and we didn't have decades of background work into cell mechanics, like thoroughly understood just for the sake of understanding it, we would have this tool and have no idea how to use it or how it works or what's going on. But, you know, essentially now, you know, synthetic biology is a multi-billion dollar industry. I've told you before that I honestly see it as being the next, you know, the, the 21st century version of computer science. I really believe it's going to be that impactful and that far reaching. And if it wasn't for pure fundamental biology funded by government research with no clear application, we would be completely lost at sea with no hope of figuring out how to use it. So I, I really just want to say that because here in synthetic biology, we truly stand on the shoulders of people who are just interested in how cells work. So very, very fortunate to have that. I appreciate that perspective on on science for the sake of science, for the sake of being prepared if and when we need it, right? Because it, it does seem like it can be explained away as just a means to an end when it's happening in the moment. But like what you're talking about now, we were we were maybe knowingly or unknowingly preparing to potentially use this information, right? We wouldn't actually be spending all this time and money if we didn't have some feeling like it might actually be worth something at some point. And I'll even push back a little bit on that because I think like sometimes we don't even need to say like, oh, we're preparing for something. I think there's like, like knowing about how cells work, knowing about how cells repair the genetic information when damaged is worth knowing in and of itself. We don't even necessarily have to be preparing for some potentially forthcoming technology. I think it's worth just knowing about these things. And the fact that now it's become a crucial piece of knowledge in a multi-billion dollar industry is fortuitous and really fantastic and instrumental, but just knowing is important in my opinion, even if it never came to this. And so I really feel like we should be funding more bare bones research uh, with no clear application just for the hell of it. You heard it here first listeners. <laughs> <laughs> just just find uh, something that you love that some find something that you want to know more about and then don't think about the justification do it get in there get your hands dirty and just learn more for the sake of the pursuit of knowledge and I, i'm not just saying that absolutely. as a throwaway statement i actually do truly love the pursuit of knowledge myself sometimes i find myself reading books that don't really, really relate to what my academic interests are or any of my other interests it's just kind of cool to learn about how the world works at, at any scale through any lens sure. just finding out more information you know yeah i've watched a couple of films and and read a couple of books recently that that really kind of dance around this idea of finding the meaning of life and every time it always comes down to there is no meaning of life you kind of got to make your own meaning and i personally find <laughs> meaning in in knowing more about things and that's really why i started this podcast so Thank you for contributing to me knowing more things. And I'd like to ask you the same. Well, I'm glad. Where do you find meaning? Oh, um, I like to make to-do lists and I like to cross things off to-do lists. That's uh, kind of the best I got for you. <laughs> That's great. I back it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. 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 I, I don't know. I like, I like working on my bike. I like going rock climbing. I like showing up to the lab every day and working on my experiments and trying to figure out why they all failed. Let's <laughs> go on nice long rides into the sunset thinking about your failures. Exactly. Yeah. One of my favorite things to do is whenever my, all my experiments failed, I like to hop on my bike and ride until I'm, you know, so exhausted that my failures don't really matter so much. Yeah. Just the lactic acid. Yeah. Just the lactic the acid. The thing keeping you moving. Yeah. That's, that's cool. Let me just hop back into the CAR-T process and explain how it finishes off. Go for it. Uh, so... 
as yeah. we discussed, we have our perfect Newton, right? We, we've used this electroporation technique to create these nanopores. We've gotten our DNA and our CRISPR-Cas9 system into the cells. The, the system has worked, it's found its site, it's created its cut, it's inserted its new gene, and we've isolated our perfect T cell. Right, we isolate this T cell and we grow it into a large population. And I'm talking huge, like as I mentioned earlier in the show, we get 10 to the 10 cells. That's 10 billion cells. Of this perfect mutant and grown into a massive population. We're now gonna re-inject it back into the patient and let it do its work. And so what I imagine for the devices I work on is I would love for eventually a consolidated platform to be receiving the blood as it's drawn out of the patient, isolating out the T cells, inserting the DNA into the T cell, isolating the perfect mutant, growing it up to a massive size, and then putting it back into the IV bag to be dripped back into the patient. That for me is like a consolidated single platform. Because right now to do CAR T therapy, it's numerous steps with highly trained technicians doing very complicated procedures with high stakes. You know, like this is a patient's life at line here. And I think that's a really high ask out of a skilled technician. But if we can automate machinery to handle each of those steps individually, I think one, we can eliminate some of the error, but two, make this much more available. Because right now you can only get these procedures where the highly skilled technicians live. If you have cancer, I don't know, perhaps in a developing country, tough, tough luck. But if we can make this more widely available and make it a machine as common as any other, I, I think this could really become wide scale. And from there, once we, we've shown that something like CAR T therapy can work, we can start talking about other somatic gene therapies. And once again, just to remind the, the listener, somatic gene therapy is when you have a fully grown human, you take just a problematic cell and edit the genes of that problematic cell. So this would not be passed on to any children. We're not talking about designer babies or anything outlandish like that. We're just talking about curing truly harmful diseases that have genetic bases altering that genetic basis to create a more helpful mutation, restoring that to a sick person, allowing them to live a healthy life. And I think having a system that's consolidated, automated, all in one to remove cells, fix cells and re-inject cells, for me, that, that's the future of gene therapy. I'm really glad you brought it back to this kind of automation because that's really what, I, what I've been thinking this whole time. As you said much earlier on that generally right now, we need to use someone's own immune system, right? Mm -hmm. So th this is not something where you can create a population of trillions of cells and then send it all around the world. Right now, we really need to take this case by case, yeah. right? Yeah, and and that's also the, that's the nature of genetic operations, right? Like there are for a lot of diseases, known mutations. You know, like for sickle cell anemia, a lot of times we know the mutation. It, it stemmed from a single person thousands of years ago and has worked its way into a larger population. And so all the mutations are more or less identical. But for some diseases, it's a one-off. You're a true one in seven billion. And so we can't really have a, a consolidated you know, system chilling in a warehouse for one in seven billion, right. you know, or, or a couple in seven billion. You know, the beauty about gene therapy is it's truly personalized medicine. One thing that's, that's really always bothered me about disease is that there's kind of this hierarchy where if your disease is just more common, you're just luckier, you know, your, your, your chance of survival just higher. And it's just these random, like you're calling stochastic processes that happen in our bodies that lead to, you know, the binding of the Cas9 and the DNA are also operating when we're talking about these, these, these random mutations occurring leading to cancers. It, it's just... Uh, a beautiful and also a, a very dark nature of 
our body yeah. so that they can both give us the tools we need to heal us and also kill us from the inside out. Yeah, so, absolutely. It's crazy stuff. I, there's always one final question that I ask my guest, which is if there were a thousand people in front of you right now, what would you tell them? I kind of feel like you answered that question before when you did your little public service announcement sure. about about funding. But just just so I can give you the fair play here, if I were to ask you that question, you're standing at the foot of an auditorium. It's packed to the brim. You have less than a minute. What do you tell people? Maybe it's a cliche, but just be curious. You know, I my dad and I were talking the other day just about, um, you know, I've been fortunate in life. I'm not from a rich family by any stretch of the imagination, but I've been very fortunate to be in like a comfortably middle-class family. And my dad didn't have those same advantages. He grew up relatively poor. And I would say the biggest advantage him, him and I had this conversation, the big advantage I had in life that he didn't is I got to genuinely pursue my interests. And that was fueled by just this really raw curiosity. And I would encourage anyone to just have that exact same curiosity. And especially if you're interested in graduate studies, you know, you have to have this really raw curiosity to drive you because you're, you're going to fail all the time. I, <laughs> I fail, I would say 90% of my experiments just fall flat on their face. And of the 10 that don't fall flat on their face, you know, 90% of those ones are relative failures. I just have some inkling of hope inside of them. And so if you don't just have this really, really, really pure curiosity, it, it's not going to go anywhere. Cool. I like that. Very real. <laughs> we're not we're not sugarcoating anything here on abstract today. No, it's, it's science is really hard. <laughs> you, you're going to fail all the time. Perfect. So expect it. Expect the failures, but expect that once in a while, if you put in the work, if you got that curiosity driving you, things will things will sure. turn up, and good things and beautiful things do happen. So Sam, thank you so much for for just pouring out your seemingly endless knowledge. I really appreciate you sharing that yeah. with us today. So thank Thanks, you so Jeremy. much. Thanks, Jeremy. I really appreciate it. I'm looking forward to listening to some of the abstract back catalog. I think you got some good shows here. <laughs> Absolutely. We this is this is one of the first episodes of uh, 2021. So hey, folks, happy new year! Thank you for tuning back in in uh, in what will hopefully be a very very glorious year for everyone. 2021. Yeah, wear a mask, get vaccinated. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. All right, take it easy, Sam. Thanks again. And cheers. Yeah, be well. Thanks for listening. If you liked what you heard, you can check us out at AbstractCast on Instagram. If you have any feedback, please feel free to leave a comment on the post for the current or any previous episode that you might have listened to. Or if you're a graduate student and you would like to be on the podcast yourself, you can drop us a line at AbstractCast at gmail.com. This podcast will be released weekly on Sundays and is also available on Spotify. Apple Podcasts, and pretty much everywhere else you're going to find podcasts. So feel free to check us out around the internet. Until then, take it easy.